Hi, Leslie. <laughs> Hi, Karen. Oh, it's great to see you today. Thank and you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, it's it's really nice to to have a chance to talk and connect. And we um, we had some email exchanges after the Solid Ground Live that we did around uh, psychedelics and wokeness, queering psychedelics, and and yeah. even when we had that conversation before we started that live, I thought, I, I wish Karen were here because I, I would love to get your perspective on this, but perhaps um, would you mind starting out by just introducing yourself a little bit and uh, sure. give a little bit of your background so that people will know who they're, who they're hearing yeah. today. So um, I'm the psychedelic counselor um, as does my business. I do supervision, consultation, and ketamine assisted psychotherapy. I'm MAPS trained as an MDMA certified therapist trainee. And I'm also MAPS trained in their year long program for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And I have to say I'm a trainee because we haven't yet had the supervision because all of the studies are still in clinical trials. So we mm -hmm. can't have the actual supervised experience yet, but soon. And I, I have a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy clinic for the past three years here in Washington. I train therapists and give workshops on assisted psychotherapy um, from the psychedelic perspective. And my background is as a practicing Tibetan Buddhist and contemplative psychotherapy is my specialty. And um, I actually got my undergraduate at Naropa University, which is a Boulder-based Buddhist college. And they also hosted the first cohort of the MAP Psychedelic Assisted Psychotherapy. So it was a 20 year difference um, coming in and I have a lot to share about that, I'm excited. So you've do. seen it over over its evolution in, in the contemporary scene, mm -hmm. watch this develop. Yes, I really have quite accidentally. Mm -hmm. When I was 20, in my early 20s, um, I was a professional dancer and I injured myself and I was in Miami and I decided to move to Boulder and go to Naropa and study what I thought would be the psychology of dance and, um, and ended up studying consciousness and religion and which I guess is probably related to the originations of dance. And, um, I ended up going in 1994. Four, I think it was, I went with Terrence McKenna, Jonathan Ott, and Ralph Metzner down to Mexico as a 22-year-old, not knowing who these people were. And wow. I know, and studied wow. Jonathan Ott's wife was into ritual dance at the time. And so it was presentations on ritual and dance and also Terrence McKenna and um, psychedelics. And it really opened my world up. And then I... I was a stage technician for my work study job at Naropa. And so then I started working with people like Alex Gray, um, who would come in. He's an, I don't know if you know of him. It's I don't a, know basically a psychedelic name. illustrator, oh, okay. really powerful in the, in the new age movement and is mm. still practicing strong. I think, I don't think he's dead, but so I, I had all these interesting influences I ran sound for Allen Ginsberg and, and the whole um, Jack Kerouac School for Disembodied Poetics in the summer. <laughs> so this was like a rich immersion in altered and non-ordinary states of consciousness while all the while practicing Tibetan meditation. So wow. I didn't know it would lay the groundwork for my future career. <laughs> wow. And that was in your 20s. That was in my 20s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, just as a side note, I never did any psychedelics until I was 50. Oh, wow. 
Oh, that's really interesting. So you're kind of steeped in this, 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 the, the fluidity of that lifestyle, but not, not really experimenting for yourself. Yeah. I mean, for me, um, I had such a turbulent inner emotional world. It was really hard for me to imagine being comfortable in a non-ordinary state, Mm. but I was really transfixed by the idea that people could be transformed by experiencing Mm. these altered states of consciousness through meditation, through asceticism. It's a hard word to say, Mm -hmm. um, religious practices, um, all those things. Those are the things that really captured my attention. Well, that's really fascinating. And so you, um, this, the, it's, it's great. I, and I, I really wish we'd had you there for that discussion because we've <laughs> talked about this. We talked about the, the politicization of this field yeah. and how, and what the implications are of that. And it seems like it's a place where, um, our minds are more malleable in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. use of certain substances to, to mm-hmm. transform our thinking and our behavior mm-hmm. patterns. Mm-hmm. And a place where it, to, to anybody who's concerned about critical social justice or queer theory, the incursion of those things into these trainings seems to be pretty concerning. And, and so yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, but first I'm, I'm just personally, when you talk about ketamine assisted therapy, I, I don't know if you listened to that thing, but I talked about a ketamine experience of mine, which was probably one of the most terrifying experiences I've mm. ever had. Oh, and wow. I, I still can't imagine. So maybe you can help me with this, help me understand how this can be let's, helpful. Let's do an integration <laughs> session. <laughs> so, <laughs> yo, so I'll tell you my ketamine experience was not because I wanted yeah to use ketamine for any reason. I was in the hospital and I was in a lot of pain Mm. and I'd been administered so much morphine and fentanyl that my Mm. blood pressure was really low and my breathing, my respiration was super depressed. And so they couldn't give me any more, but they still weren't able to control the pain. I was still like writhing and moaning. It was this, this is really very, very painful. I had ovarian torsion, which resulted in the removal of an ovary. So anyway, that's a long story, but, um, that the a nurse came in and in the midst of this mm. um you know morphine and fentanyl induced fugue with pain um she administered a, a dose of ketamine without priming me for this and so oh, i went wow. from wow. from excruciating pain and uh you know opium delirium to uh suddenly the whole world was was like geometry. It was like squares. And I had no sense of my body. I had no sense of my, like I was hearing people say, close your eyes. And I, I couldn't understand what eyes meant. And I, I was hearing these words, but they didn't make sense to me. And I thought I was dead and it was terrifying. And it it actually led to a lot of fear afterwards. So I struggle to understand how this is a helpful thing. So maybe with that's a lot of personal context, but hopefully you can help me synthesize that. Oh my gosh, Leslie, that I, what you have just described is like every psychedelic assisted therapist's worst nightmare Okay, and, and proves the actual, um, clinical efficacy and crucial aspects of set and setting, which mm. is the client has to know what's happening. <laughs> that is the very baseline. Cause I can imagine you, who knows what dosage you were given, first of all, the context is you had no idea it was happening. Mm-hmm. You were in pain and you also had all these other drugs in your system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
I think it's it's understandable and also interesting that you're really holding ketamine as the culprit for that. Um, you know, understandable <laughs> okay, yeah. because it was the thing that was um, sort of perpetrated on you. Um, but what I would say is that with if you are building up for four weeks with your therapist and you're you've been fully explained what the experience will be, it's a very minimal dose compared mm -hmm. to what they do in hospitals for anesthesia. Okay. So who knows what they might've given you an extraordinary dose. And well, I don't remember what the dose was. Mm -hmm. I probably could find it in my records, but what mm -hmm. the, the nurse's excuse for not prepping me was it's, I just gave her such a low dose. I didn't expect mm -hmm. her to have hallucinations on that low dose. So yeah. I don't know what that means. Well, you know, I think what it means is that you needed to be very prepared for what was going to happen mm -hmm. and you weren't, and mm -hmm. that can be terrifying. It would be like walking along and having a near death experience. You just would not know how to contextualize that. But if mm -hmm. I work with you for eight weeks, even four weeks, and I set the expectation, ketamine is one of the only psychedelics that in, helps induce a classic near death experience. Oh, wow. It, your experience of that might've been very different mm -hmm. because let's say you had been informed and reassured and set intentions. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could have zoomed out of your body with willingness and said, okay, what do I need to learn? But okay. instead you were forced and it was terrifying. Of course. Well, that near death experience, as you call it, that is, that's what it felt like. I did feel yeah. like I was, I wondered if I were alive anymore, you know, it was... and that's a really, you know, it's hard to say things are common because actually, interestingly, in ketamine, everyone has such an completely individualistic response, mm. but it is pretty common for people to have a near death experience. Um, I had that myself. I did ketamine once. Um, I have the appropriate diagnosis and the, the psychological history to have it be prescribed to me. So I did the treatment and I had a classic near-death experience of zooming mm. out of my body, feeling mm. a presence of a, a neutral entity, losing time, believing I was dead. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. And yeah, it, so it's interesting. We both had the same experience, but very different context. But yours was a, you feel that yours was a helpful experience and a positive it was life-changing oh wow. it was life-changing i came out of it um and it's uh 0.5 milligrams per kilogram is the dosage for the iv that we use okay um, i came out of it and as is sort of normal and natural at the the less lucid hour of the ketamine experience all the psycholytic material comes up hmm. and so i was i was having visualizations of threads of emotional patterns throughout my life that sort of put things into place for me that have shifted me since. And that was three years ago. Okay. Wow. So you're still feeling like there's been a change. The change is ongoing for you. Yeah. And that is, that is the big exciting science around um, psilocybin LSD. All the research has been done mm -hmm. on these um, hallucinogens and psych psychedelics. MDMA is the neuroplasticity effect mm -hmm. after the mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. You know, there is research that says the mystical experience is very important for mm -hmm. clinical outcome, but there's also research that says it's not so necessary. And it's really the neuroplasticity afterwards that creates the long lasting change. So perhaps you had some change. It'd probably be hard to tell. I have had um, a lot of change. Yeah, well, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, well, and from that as well, yeah, not just, yeah. Not, yeah. No, I, I do feel like it has made uh, it, and I've, I've had a couple of, and you know, I'm more interested in the over 
the the overview than than in synthesizing my own story and and understanding sure. my own story in this process. But um, or for the purposes it's of great, this it's discussion, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great a doorway. doorway. I think that's compelling for people to know that you know these personal experiences to attach it to a narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so since then, I've had a couple of what I've described as epiphanies or mm. um, or s- sort of spiritual experiences that have, wow. that have occurred since this, and yeah. they've been very powerful. And I, I think it's had positive and negative effects on my life since, but the, in the immediate aftermath, it was all negative. Mm-hmm. It was just fear. I was, I was really fear. afraid. I felt so afraid of death and yeah. I was terrified of yeah. that happening again. And I felt like I was yeah. having flashbacks of it because it was so, um, yeah. it was just, it was just so stark that experience. Yeah. And so it's very interesting to me to, to hear, or I am very interested in hearing how, if that's one way to do it, what's the right way to do it? Like who is yeah. a good candidate for working with ketamine yeah. and what is the process like, and what is the actual session like, yeah. and then what's the integration process afterwards? Like, so if you could walk yeah. us through that, that would be great. Yeah, Sure. And, and let me just, before I start say that, um, I too had a similar experience, even with the positivity of the the emotion that I felt Mm -hmm. afterwards, I became really fearful of death because Mm -hmm. I felt like I had experienced it and it wasn't the, the thing I had expected it or, um, you know, I've been an atheist all my life. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And it was shocking. And I think it disorienting Mm. and what really helped me, Leslie, and what I might actually suggest, and I suggest to my clients too, is to look at the studies and the stories of near-death experiences. Mm, mm. They're incredibly reassuring and powerful clinical studies, thousands of them, of people who have had these experiences spontaneously, you know, within a medical context mm-hmm. um, or an accident or something. And the things that they bring back are very reassuring. Mm. So are there any resources that you would direct me or anybody yeah. else to specifically? Yeah. Raymond Moody is one of the foremost researchers. Okay. Um, and uh, Bruce Grayson, but really the the uh, uh, institute is it the institute? It's called IONS, the Institute of American Near Death Studies. I think that's no the International Association of Near Death Studies. That's what it is. It's based in North in, Carolina. International Association Association of Near Death Studies. It's called IONS. And they have annual conferences. They actually have workshops um, almost weekly Mm. for uh, experiencers and also people who want to learn about it. And there's some really interesting books. Um, I can send you a list. (laughs) Oh yeah. I'd love that because then I can put them in the notes so that if anybody hears this and wants to follow that, they can. Yeah. Awesome. So thanks for that aside. Mm -hmm. Um, I love sharing that because it's so interesting. Um, It's such interesting work. And I really feel like it, it adds to and parallels psychedelic work Mm -hmm. um, because it is at its very least a very non-ordinary state. Um, I think that's interesting to draw that parallel actually, mm, because it seems like a near death experience that has some positive and some negative to it. There's a lot of, well, it's near. So that means you didn't actually die and you came back from it. So there's something profound in that, but there's also the, the harrowing fact that whatever was happening to you was so dire that it was nearly fatal. 
Right. And so this is offering, you said that ketamine is one of the substances that offers a similar sort of yeah. experience and sensation, but is it yeah. safe? Yes, it okay. is safe. It's okay. given at such a low dose. It's not addictive. Um, there are medical rule outs. So if you okay. have cystitis or glaucoma or a few other things, you, you really shouldn't use ketamine just for the risk factor. Mm -hmm. um, so ketamine is uh, an anesthetic and it's off label use is for treatment resistant depression and PTSD. Okay. So um, it's safe to use. You can see it in many forms in the sense of sometimes a nurse anesthetist runs a clinic and just does the medicine. Okay. And then sometimes more rarely, there are clinics like mine where we do the methods of uh, medication. And then the second hour, or the third hour, we do the therapy. And the research has shown that when you do the therapy in that second or third hour, the positive effects can last twice as long, which means instead mm -hmm. of six months, a year or even longer. Okay. So that's sort of the, the overview. So, so you do the, you administer the treatment and then sure. you, the, the individual stays with you for two to three hours and there's a, yeah. a treatment period. And then there's an, a post-treatment um, discussion that happens, the therapy that happens. Yeah. I'll, okay. I'll tell you the flow and okay. it depends on administration. So right now, like our clinic uses three forms of administration and there are four and they each have different protocols. So there's IV, okay. there's IM, which we don't do. Um, okay. There's lozenge and there's Provado, which is covered by insurance. It's a nasal spray. Oh, okay. So, oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, IV is two hours with the second hour being the therapy. Um, we don't do IM, so I'm not sure about that. Um, I've heard what other clinics do, but I'll just an injection, intramuscular injection, intramuscular. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then lozenge is a three hour session. Okay. And Spravato is a two hour session followed up by a third hour of therapy. So clients are in that neuroplastic state. Mm. So IV is twice a week for three weeks with a month follow-up. Um, lozenge is once a week for four weeks or once a month or once every two weeks, it's really based on the individual's tolerance and the efficacy of it for them mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and their physiology. Mm -hmm. And then Spravato is twice a week for three weeks and it can be used. All of these things can be used interspersed with each other. Like if someone does IV, they could do a lozenge next time. So it's very, um, it's very individualistic and can be attenuated to what your comfort level is or what, what your needs are. Okay. And typically for all those, what we do as the psychedelic counselor, I see clients who come to me and this is just my preference is I will only work with clients who have either been in therapy for a, a while and have those skills. They have a strong support system, mm -hmm. but they're just really finding that this one piece of trauma, like maybe having a near death experience <laughs> in a medical process. Oh, wow. They, yeah. They want to get through it and, uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. or there's some sticking point. And so I'll meet with them for three to four sessions. It really depends on the level of their trauma or their intentions. And we'll get all of that history. Um, I'll talk with them about their intentions. We'll set expectations and, um, and prepare them for the lozenge session, which is okay. three hours. Mm -hmm. And then two days after that, we have an integration session. Okay. And then 
sometimes a week after that, we'll have another one a week after another one. So when you come okay. for academy treatment with me, it's really about eight to 10 sessions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's not, it's different than talk therapy, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. cause it's not this ongoing, it's more like mm -hmm. an interval yeah. therapy. It's like a brief mm -hmm. intervention almost. Yeah. So you have, it's kind of sandwiched in there that the actual medication yeah. treatment is sandwiched between yeah. a lot of prep and yes. rapport building and you getting to understand the nature of the issue for the, for the client. Yeah. And then afterwards, yeah really careful reintegration of that experience. Yeah. I mean, the, each piece is so crucial and what we found, especially right now, cause we have the most experience I can speak to in our IV sessions is that mm -hmm. one of the hardest things for people to deal with after they have this full wave is tolerating joy and becoming this, ex having this experience um, that they're not used to in their identity. And mm. their family is responding to them differently. They're doing things differently in their lives. It's almost like they don't recognize themselves fully and they have to get some balance back. And so really helping them hold that and mm. new expectations for themselves. And that's what we've noticed is really the most challenging piece. That's so interesting. I'm just hung up on that phrase, tolerating joy. Tolerating joy. Will you say well, a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, when you, I think it, I think I sort of heard that or read that in talking about um, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. You know, that yeah. one of the most difficult things to really integrate or manage is when we become the people that we've always wanted to be, or when the symptoms are less, the mm. emotional variability is reduced, then who are we? Is it about not believing it fully and waiting for the other shoe to drop? I, that is definitely part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mm. think there's a sense of groundlessness because- mm you know, we've, for those of us that grow up with trauma, we always have it to reference mm -hmm. to like, mm -hmm. I, I'm upset about this. Oh, I wonder if it's because I'm wounded or damaged. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm upset mm -hmm. about this. And there's this gentle referencing, I think to it mm -hmm. as part of our narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when you actually feel more integrated or peaceful about that? Something happens in your life. You can't negatively reference it. It, yeah, you might be positively referencing it. And that can be really disorienting. Well, it's destabilizing, <laughs> even if it's a removal yeah. of something that is yeah. unwanted. It's still if it's been a, a foundational aspect yeah. of self, it can I'm sure that it, yeah. it there has to be a recreation of who you are. Which I think is why the ritual is so important, because that's mm -hmm. what ritual does. Like ritual is a, a formalized gateway to tolerate the extremes. Mm -hmm. and to be witnessed. So I'm thinking about marriage, you know, your, and um, birth and these, these rituals that we hold around these big events in our lives are really containers for dealing with all the destabilization, grieving the loss of what was welcoming the possibility of what mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. I think it's really, and this kind of moves nicely into the psychedelic training is um, the power of ritual is that you do have this preparation, you have intention setting, mm -hmm. um, you know, people can call in their spirit guides um, and, and it has a spiritual aspect to it mm -hmm. um, because they're moving into a non-ordinary state and expecting that, which, you know, spirituality is the realm of that usually. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so in our training, we do talk a lot about the context set and setting and the mm -hmm. ritual, um, which is, uh, a really powerful part of it for people. And but we don't it, want to overlay our own 
spirituality. Mm -hmm. So it's really an exploration with the client about that. And that's probably part of that initial yeah. discussion groundwork yeah. that you're laying. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. What you're describing is really kind of a rite of passage mm -hmm. and the, and that's, that's, it's, it's so interesting because it does seem like so often when we experience significant change, whether yeah. it's positive or negative, it does cause that shift that the ground under us shifts and it can be very hard to figure out who you are in the context mm -hmm. of this new setting of this new context. And, yeah. um, so the rite of passage yeah. plays a, a really important role in helping you to make sense of, of the new, yeah. the new life or the transition that you've gone through. Yeah. And we have, so how does that, cause that seems like a very, um, it's transpersonal. It's very yes. spiritual in yes. essence. It's about the soft, squishy parts of us that can't be put into make matrices and, you know, right. check boxes. And here it is in the context of a medical setting, a medical clinical setting sure. where we are looking at people based on data and uh, ones yeah. and zeros. I always like to, to yeah. think about it that way. How does that work when you are, are melding yeah. these two paradigms that seem so op opposed to one another? Yeah. So again, let me answer that first question about ritual. Okay, like sure. to say, and yeah. I want to, I want to move into this because I love talking about the seeming dichotomy between yeah. the physical and the spiritual. Great. Um, the first is that one of the gifts of working at Naropa and doing sound for all kinds of wacky visitors was that I got to sit in on lectures with people from all over the world with different spiritualities and religions. And I would highly recommend a book called Of Water and the Spirit by Maladoma Somme. Oh, will you spell the name for me? Yeah. Maladoma and then S-O-M-E, Somme. He's a West African shaman who was kidnapped by Jesuits when he was young and then escaped when he was 18, but got back to his tribe, the Dagra tribe, and um, was initiated as a shaman. And he was the world wisdom chair, as it was called at Naropa at the time. And he said something I will never forget about ritual and initiation in white western culture okay because he has this he has this unique perspective of being trained in a religious a white western religious jesuit tradition which you know historically of course wasn't white western but became that way mm -hmm. um and uh that whole setting he has this interesting framework so he's rich with the information of ancestors and ritual and that tribal knowledge and then he was educated in this other form and so what he says is his main message to every audience was stop reinitiating yourselves so okay. he has this theory that white western culture hmm. doesn't have an initiation process and okay. so what interesting do, yeah initiation drug, into what adulthood or or what is what does that mean yeah it's a good question yeah, I mean, I think initiation happens in their tribe, if I remember correctly, and in, in a, at the adolescence, right? Okay. And so, but it is like a, a deeper way of knowing yourself, your tribe, your community, uh, connecting with your ancestors and your spiritual purpose, mm. your meaning for being here. And his, his message was, we don't know why we're here mm -hmm. and we don't have this initiation process to hold us. 
And so we reinitiate through violence to each other, through alcohol, through drugs, through, um, at that point there were barely computers, but through checking out mm. basically. And, and that initiation process is an attempt to understand or an yes. attempt to what belong or what is it's that? An, it's an attempt to live in a deep way that's filled with meaning. Okay. So, you know, okay. like you could, in the Christian tradition, there's confirmation, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think he was making a broad generalization that um, we don't we don't hold this in mainstream culture very well. And mm -hmm. so I always have that in the back of my mind when I talk about ritual, mm -hmm. um, because it's something I think that is a birthright for every person is to have this sense of connecting to awe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I believe that ritual is the gateway to that. So in the medical context, I have so much to say about this because um, we well, it, as counselors. And it oh, seems like the very thing that is causing us to have a detachment to some extent is this data driven, um, right? like looking at people as right. as cogs and components, which is yeah. this medical mindset. I mean, yeah. so yeah, I'm really interested. I'm yeah. I mean, I guess what my thoughts on it are that that approach is a symptom of a deeper misunderstanding. Okay. And it's only a language like as counselors, we are used to treading these two worlds because mm -hmm. we, we are in, we are fully ensconced in the medical model. We have to have a medical reason for necessity for a diagnosis in order to be reimbursed by insurance. Mm -hmm. So we learn this um, diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm. We learn that context. And what I what I like to think of as that language, mm -hmm. it, then it, it helps me know that I don't have to fully invest every bit of my being into it. Yeah. That there's a rich person, a constellation of experiences that is represented by this CPT code or this diagnostic code. Right but it is not the whole of their being um, and, and sort of accepting this is how it functions in our society for the people to get help. Yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a bit of acquiescence to the medical model, but there's also a sense of empowerment in that we know it's just a representation and it doesn't speak to the whole person. Right. So what I would say is that because we are indoctrinated in the Western medical model, mm -hmm. we grew up in it. We've, you know, we learn that when we're sick, we have something to treat the symptoms, mm -hmm. um, allopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. Most people feel safer if they know they have that structure around them. Mm -hmm. It's more, let's say it's uh, more intimidating to go to an energy healer. We don't understand it. Mm -hmm. There's stigma against it. Um, so I would say the benefit of it for psychedelic work is that people need an even stronger medical container and sometimes mm. because the treatment itself is so um amorphous or ephemeral or ethereal mm -hmm. right right so, so it's more going yeah. to that set and setting because you're taking yeah. into con into consideration the context from which this person is coming to you yeah yeah and i you know there is the thing i'm really interested about that leads to queer the queering of psychedelics is that you know what i experienced in my neuropa training was very contrary to what I expected to experience. And um, in the sense of what we were for five days, we were uh, guided on the right use of power. And while I understand it's important that we use the position of hierarchy, 
that we have as counselors or healers. Um, it was very much from a critical social justice perspective. Okay. Yeah. And it really elevated the view of the indigenous, what they call indigenous science. And, and so uh, what I experienced was, I would say 90% of the people that I interacted with really dissed medical, the medical model. And, um, and I think it's really short-sighted because our medical model is Greek in origin and the Oracle of Delphi was part of this tradition. (laughs) You know, there is a rich Western history that cannot be Mm -hmm. dismissed, um, Mm-hmm. simply because it's not indigenous but it actually is indigenous but it's uh it's of the grecian origin so it's lumped in with something that is not valued right so right well that's yeah, really so- interesting because it also mm-hmm. has it's i i can see what you're saying and i think that's really a, a beautiful way to frame that and, and it draws out something that's deeper than what we yeah. we're tending to react to on the surface yeah However, the medical model that, that I think that I have come to be so suspicious of and so, yeah. uh, and, and have chosen. And so I have a lot of opinions about that, but I won't take our, yeah. our time today yeah. to fill with my opinions, but part of the thing that I recoiled from in my graduate training in, in clinical mental health counseling was the medical aspect, the technocratic yeah. medical aspect of it. Sure. And the fact that we were, you know, required to provide give a diagnosis to everybody for everything and break things yeah. down in this perform mental, mental status exams. And I felt like it was a, uh, it, it, it changed the dynamic between the two people in a way that mm-hmm. I didn't like, and yeah. I felt was not what I wanted to work with. So, but, so it, but it's interesting, as you're saying, they wanted to focus on these indigenous mm-hmm. ways of, of using these, mm-hmm. these substances. However, you're being trained and into a medical uh, paradigm. So why would you not take full advantage of that and and explore that? Why would you reject that while doing it? And that seems like it it holds a lot of contradiction there and cuts off your access to tools that that maybe there's reason for skepticism, but there's also ways to use them that could be advantageous. Exactly. And I think that's just, you elucidated the point so clearly is that, if we can't acknowledge the system that we're actually working within and we're creating our own rules, it's not going to be effective for the client. Right. And we have to, we have to be in congruence mm-hmm. with how we fit into the system that is, I guess, ultimately, even though I've been studying all these wacky things for so long, I'm really a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. And my thought is I want to get this to people. Mm-hmm. This is helpful. And how exciting to be a practitioner at this time where we have these treatments that are not only uh, neurobiologically represented, Mm -hmm. but we are actually helping people experience deeper, perhaps spiritual parts of themselves in Mm -hmm. order to heal war wounds, any kind of relational trauma, treatment Mm -hmm. resistant depression. We don't have tools for these right now that are as effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, my excitement, I think, about the possibility helps me tolerate the tension of squeezing into this model. And I think there are valid concerns for sure. I mean, the abuse of power, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the medical gaslighting, I've experienced it myself even -hmm. two weeks ago. Um, The material reductionist approach is not helpful 
mm-hmm. for us, we're whole human beings. Um, mm-hmm. And yet still, I don't think that's going to be dismantled. And, and maybe for me, that's the ultimate thing here is that um, I don't want to dismantle it. I want to infuse it with maybe awareness or some conscious practice or try to change it from within. I could be misguided, but mm. this, <laughs> this tends to be my approach. I don't think railing against the machine and dismantling is helpful for anyone. Well, it doesn't seem like it's like you said it, that it's incongruent. You're not, you're working with something that you're fighting against while you work with it. And that doesn't make any sense. Instead, it would help to understand and to work to understand what are your criticisms and what are your qualms? And is there a way to integrate these things? And, and something you said there about how we don't have the tools in our, in the clinical model to do some of the things that, that you're seeing um, with, with these approaches. And I wonder if part of that is because the clinical model in its materialist reductionism fails to tap into the spirit. And I think that that's a really wishy-washy thing to get into. It starts to sound really funny, but there's, it's kind of because we don't have language to really talk about some of these concepts that are more, more, um, um, I guess, spiritual and transpersonal than, yeah. than what we, you know, it's really difficult to f- use logic and reason to, to talk about some of these things because they are so individual and so ethereal. Right. And so when you introduce something like this, which is like this entheogenic chaos into the mix, <laughs> does that tap into the spirit in a way that the clinical model just doesn't, isn't, isn't capable of, or am I way off base with that? I think it's a really interesting question. And it makes me think of about challenging a little bit the idea that uh, the ethereal can't be logical and rational. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, please please I, uh, challenge it. You know, I think that's what transpersonal psychology has been working with mm-hmm. all these years is that um, there's a subjective human experience that matters as much as an objective human experience. And that, um, we maybe don't have the same, this is my view, is we don't have the same technology mm-hmm. or cognitive language to express logic and reason, but we certainly have art and we certainly have dance and we have these embodied or um, creative, the creativity mm-hmm. is I think the way that we do that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe art therapy is is one, even though it is so, it has such a particular dynamic and technique. Um, yeah, let me pause for a second and regroup because what you're asking is, does the clinical model itself kind of prevent any connection to spirituality or the use of spirituality? And the dis- of, in the- yeah. are in- entheogens mm-hmm. the way to mm-hmm. really have that? You know, I think it's just, it's interesting to answer because I, I think about how, um, AA has mm-hmm. been shown to be so effective. I I, I saw a, a presentation years ago by Jeff Gray, I think his name was a researcher out of North Carolina. And what he studied was spiritual experiences in groups. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's this resonance that happens in a particular part of the brain when you're in a group talking about a spiritual something. Mm. And that he was his his research was saying AA is successful because of that. Okay. Um, so that's just one way that maybe it's not entheogens or psychedelics, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. 
I think that the breathwork and transpersonal psychology and union psychology have been really the holding this container for a spiritual approach mm -hmm. for a long time and that we need to really embrace them, which is why contemplative psychology is the technique that's used in the clinical trials. Um, contemplative psychotherapy is imbued with the principles of Buddhism. And so it is an approach and DBT was taken from Buddhism too. So although it's clinical and evidence-based, it comes from a very rich thousands of years old spiritual perspective, mm -hmm. just like contemplative psychotherapy. So I'm, I'm just realizing as we're talking like, oh, it makes sense. The contemplative approach would, it has, it's talked about these mystical consciousness experiences for thousands of years. So of course it would know how to hold mm. them in a medical context. And as you're talking about this, I think that this is, this seems like the exact thing that is necessary in those conversations where you're criticizing the modality that you're using in order mm -hmm. to implement something. Mm -hmm. So these people who are criticizing this, this clinical approach while taking the clinical training, yeah, I, the, the way that you are, you're, you're drawing a line from mm -hmm. older traditions and mm -hmm. from deeper knowledge to mm -hmm. this, this more data-based, yeah. um, I guess, evidence-based process yeah. that we're distilling to people in a, mm -hmm. in an easier way to, yeah. um, sort of conceptualize or manage or implement. But it yeah. draws that line very neatly. And mm -hmm. you you that's the integration process that seems like is needed for congruence in that space. Absolutely. And it is, you know, I'm thinking about all of the people that that comment on um, the moral decay of our culture currently <laughs> and how um, there's this sense of community that's missing. And typically we found it through church or through family structures. And so there's a lot of conversation right now in our culture about this. Mm -hmm. How do we bring a spiritual, spiritually minded moral perspective into our daily life? Um, you know, if we are able to do that successfully, maybe these conversations between woke culture and non-woke culture and um, conservative, liberal, all those labels, maybe we'd be able to have a more successful conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because we have a felt experience mm -hmm. of our own connection to a, a deeper purpose or a higher meaning. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I kind of want to get back into yeah. the, the, the experience that you've had over the time in your yeah. working around psychedelics from yeah. your your first exposures to mm -hmm. your more recent trainings how mm -hmm. have you watched the conversation change there and mm -hmm. what yeah. what what influencers are coming in that you think are positive and what are what are you concerned about i'm thinking about how when i when i went down to mexico with the the forefathers of psychedelic research and studies um I'm thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this, how it was, they were still using the word uh, shamanism uh, and uh, indigenous traditions, but it was more anthropological mm. in the sense of studying these things. And um, I even took a class called the history of consciousness. Okay. Where are, and this is separate, this is not Naropa, but a different training where a teacher brought in people who channeled, um, mm. uh, brought in 
meditators who had out-of-body experiences. And so we were really looking at what the human experience of consciousness was. Mm. And um, it was great. I loved going to Naropa in the 90s, by the way. It was awesome. Um, mm. <laughs> but that sounds really interesting to be it able was to get those perspectives. It was fascinating. And I, you know, just to put it out there at the same time, um, I was deeply involved in the Shambhala tradition, which has since in 2017, its leader has admitted to years of sexual abuse of it, of oh. his students oh, and wow. his father who founded Naropa also had that. Oh my gosh. And there was a whole sort of covering scandal. Up, yeah. Yeah. Of both of those um, father and son. Mm. So there was very much like a, a culture of devotion around the guru. Mm, okay. And I was really curious in this woke age, what the training would be. Mm. And my perspective is that it has swung way to the pendulum has swung way too far. Okay. And our training was mainly primarily 85 to 90% about, um, I had to write papers on my, uh, racial, my system internalized systemic racism Mm. Um, because I'm white, which is, I believe the most racist thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, the ironies were great and yet not perceived. Um, and we had to do exercises where we named, hi, my name is Karen. She, her cisgendered. Oh gosh. um, The intersectional thing. Yeah. Yeah. All the things. And it was so, and this is Leslie where I like, I really want to figure this out. This is going to be my decade long study is how in the world is this such a wound that it is so blind to them about how reductionist this is? If they are railing against Western medicine mm-hmm. as so short-sighted mm-hmm. and ineffective and not engaging the whole person, on the other end, we have been labeled into our groups and we are not allowed out of them. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. is the most reductionist approach I can imagine. So yeah, yeah. there's a there's a huge blind spot there. I'm yeah. really interested in helping like fill that gap with mm-hmm. some awareness mm-hmm. somehow. Um, but we, we had a few modules on psilocybin and the clinicals, you know, mainly what we were studying were the clinical studies when we were in the, the medication modules. Um, we did MDMA psychotherapy training with two wonderful practitioners. That was very useful. But really, it was about right, right use of power, mm. um, social justice, and also queering psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So we okay. had someone come who was intersex and talk to us about all the ways that we probably were being shaming or transphobic. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that with a chip on my shoulder, actually. <laughs> it really was the nature of the talk was that they were delivering all of the information about what we were doing wrong. Mm. as as therapist and isn't um, that interesting that 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 there needs to be a new overlay to tell you how to yeah. see people as individuals i mean that yes is, that should <laughs> that yes. should be that should be the foundation in the first place of working with people in this way is to see them as themselves and not as representative of different stereotypes or groups yeah and well, so and, to have to lay yeah. this on top of that i'm sorry yeah. it just seems no, like okay yeah yeah I, it was, you know, I have since done a lot of research and study and, and what I feel like is happening is for, for some reason, 
the gender ideology, queering psychedelics, all of that culture is focused on sex and sexuality. And we have classes in schools and, you know, in elementary schools now about sex practices. And my, my question is, why are we not starting with relationship? Mm. Like, shouldn't we be talking about um, creating the best love relationship 101? Mm. And then we can talk about sex and um, sexuality later in life. Um, I don't understand why it is so out of balance mm. and why sex has been conflated with relationship. That's and, really and interesting. Relationships are the things that we exist in, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. sex is necessary for, you know, in some realms for procreation, for spiritual experience, mm -hmm. um, necessary bodily function, all of those great things. Mm -hmm. But relationships are the things that we live in, in life. It's the thing that people say on their deathbed that they regret is mm -hmm. not having those relationships. So Hmm. I've just been so curious about this conflation and seeing it in psychedelics, you know, being a psychedelic practitioner is almost synonymous with being, um, a social justice warrior. And that's my, hmm. I haven't met anyone in my community. I've met people outside my community, but I haven't met anyone in my community who doesn't share the same ideological, um, approach that is being taught in, hmm. in all of these trainings. Wow. Um, gosh. Wow. The, and the things that our participants would say to these clinical researchers who are coming in, um, arguing with them when they use terms like uh, taboo or cult mm -hmm. with the social justice warriors in the audience saying that's offensive and the indigenous people have long traditions and the, you know, the prestigious researcher who's been doing these studies for 10 years says, well, this is the anthropological scientific language. It's, there's no disrespect meant. Mm -hmm. um, but to put these people on the defense for their social agenda was so embarrassing. It was so cringeworthy because, because it's the students kind of leading what they yeah. want to be. Talk to us this way, tell it to us this way. It, I'm uncomfortable with the subject matter versus how do I really negotiate mm -hmm. this and become comfortable with the subject matter with my own understanding. It's so disempowered. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really teaching that same, like, so critical social justice thing that we see everywhere is um how do you empower ourselves as disempowered therapists <laughs> it was it's so confusing yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know what i'm kind of just stepping stepping backwards yeah. to what you're you were saying about sex versus relationship and the way yeah. that we're what where our stress on sex is imbalance is yeah. is not in balance with with yeah um reality i guess or with or how the much fact that sex is focused sex is placed within relationship exactly so it yeah. makes me think again of the division between the spiritual and the material mm -hmm. and i i was just talking with a parent um last week or the week before um in a about some school curriculum that was very concerning i posted a video on this channel where we went over this and they broke it down even further from um when they were talking about sex with young children or two mm -hmm. young children right oh so not they, minor attracted sex uh, thank goodness not in that curriculum yeah, although it's right. so disturbing what they're talking about with these young kids in the first place yeah. but one of the things that yeah. they did was they talked about how 
uh, in order to make a baby, you need a sperm an egg and a uterus. And they broke it down like this. And it was even, it was it's wow. component parts. Like they're floating in space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are the things you need. And so it was, um, it was even more of the, the, the categorization and the picking apart of, of, of material parts of ourselves. And so I wonder if the, I I don't know, I don't really have like a a thesis on this at all. It's just, (laughs) it's just wondering about this relationship between the spiritual and material, and we're becoming more and more and more materially focused. And so the relationship aspect is much more spiritual because it's harder to sum up what, what that is. You can't make it, you can't graph it the same way, you know? Mm -hmm. I think we've just entered into talking about transhumanism. Ah, Mm -hmm. and I think that the the philosophy of transhumanism has really primed us for this eventuality of the division from the body. Mm. So, and that's a that's a bigger conversation about AI and and actually related to what we're saying is I really believe that AI is going to take over the um, therapy field in the next few years. Oh my gosh. I've, and, I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Cause I've seen a little <laughs> bit of that and it just makes yeah. no sense to me whatsoever. I think it's, it's really happening. I think it's already <sighs> happening. Yeah. I think therapists, human therapists. Um, I actually bought the domain humantherapist.com because I see this oh coming. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll see if I'm right about this, but psychedelics are also something that are going to be human to human. Mm-hmm. And I think getting into that realm as a young clinician is really important if you want to preserve the ability to work with people Mm. because this is something that is only a human experience and is guided by other humans so oh my gosh uh, so (laughs) yeah that that is really interesting i would i would i kind of want to do another hour with you can we do this again and and we'll focus on ai and and also we didn't really we just barely yeah. got to the point where we we're going to talk about the implications of the social justice training. And I want to, I want to really explore that with you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I um, would love to. I did. I I'll just say uh, one, just a note on what you said about AI and therapy. I mm-hmm. said over and over when I was in that graduate program, it felt like I was being trained to be a technician mm-hmm. and not a therapist. You yeah. know, the way that the diagnosis and treatment models were being shared, it felt very much like plug and play. Yeah. Just have these attitudes, listen to these things and plug and play. And you don't really need to, you're training the intuition out of it. You're training the personal right. out of it when you do that. So one of the, the thing that I was, I started a PhD program in the pandemic, transpersonal psychology, okay. and my area of clinical focus was clinical intuition. Mm. And so oh, would, how interesting. Yeah. I would love uh, to talk with you more yeah. because there are some amazing experiences I learned about that clinicians and clients have. Um, through these really powerful therapeutic relationships that are mm-hmm. being lost in these counseling programs where they're learning to breach and, um, and broach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Broaching race and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Or contextualizing things in a way a client doesn't necessarily want to do. So I'd love to have that conversation as well. Great. I, I can't <laughs> wait. And thank you again so much for talking with me, Karen. I've yeah. really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Oh, thank you for what you're doing. Yeah. And um, would you, uh, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? Any references yeah. you want to give? And and also anything you send me, 
yeah. uh, any links, I can put them into the notes, but if there's anything okay. you just want to say verbally in case people are just listening. Sure. I think it's important to acknowledge the fear when you think about psychedelic medicine or ketamine, because it's so unknown, but to be really reassured that there are those of us who are acting ethically and getting lots of training um, and have a lot of expertise clinically and want to help provide this possibly life-changing experience for people. Um, and that also at the psychedelic counselor at karencking.com, I do supervision and consultation for therapists who really want to add this to their practice. And importantly, there are not, no guidelines right now for ketamine-assisted therapy. And it's really important that we create standards and policies and protocols for the safety of the client, for the safety of our practice, and to have a better container. So, and I look forward to future conversations. Great. Well, I do too. Thank you so much, Karen. Yeah. Take care. You too.